Hello and welcome to Never Mind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time I'm joined by Councillor Keith House, leader of Eastleigh Council, which is one of the councils that elects the most Lib Dems in local elections, and yet also one of the councils that builds the most new houses, which is a truly impressive combination. So welcome to the show, Keith. Hi, Mark. It does sound like a contradiction, isn't it? But I'm, I'm sure we'll get to why it isn't a contradiction and why actually everyone could be building lots of lovely new homes and also winning lots of lovely elections along the way. Absolutely. So why don't you get a chance to boast about your electoral track record first off? So for people who aren't familiar, Eastleigh is a council on the south coast, which has been Lib Dem run and has got a huge number of Lib Dem councillors for a very long time now. Yeah, so people don't tend to know where Eastleigh is, because it's, it's that place where there were by-elections, isn't it? Most people <laughs> tend to say, but we're slap between Southampton and Winchester on the south coast in the middle of Hampshire. So we're a bit suburban and we're a bit rural and we're a bit anywheresville. And back many, many years ago, when we first started doing demographics and understanding demographics, the party was invited to buy a lot of data, including loads of loads of names of loads of liberals on the electoral register. And we bought this list and it said there are no liberals in Eastleigh. And I thought, oh, that's really worrying. We must be doing something wrong. All right. So now we took control in 1994. We had just just a couple of months before Tony Blair was elected Labour leader. We had a majority of one, which was perilous. And I recommend never going back to a majority of one. And we gradually built it up over the course of the next decade or so. We took our last Labour councillor out in 2007, six months after the tuition fees vote, just to prove you still could win against Labour then. The Tories have gradually slid down the tubes along the way too. There's now just one Tory left. He won't be there much longer. So there are now 35 Liberal Democrats and one Tory, three independents. We had an accident in one ward. We'll get that back starting next year. And those, numbers, those numbers have been pretty consistent over the last 15 years, really. And I guess it's maybe worth just digressing slightly to that point about defeating the last Labour councillor on the yeah, board. Really, really important. Really, really important. Eastleigh yeah. was a Labour council back in the 1970s. And Labour came within a few hundred votes of winning the 1970 general election for those people who are really seriously awed or, or, or sephological geeks. And so, so there is a Labour tradition in town. And we, we, we had a, a really scrappy time with UKIP because half our borough is a real working class borough really working class town. Town has been described in the past to me as being a bit like somewhere in Lancashire, slapped off the north coast and slapped back down on the south coast. So we're an interesting mixture. We Our suburbs in the south of the borough are Southampton overspill. They're people who've escaped Southampton because they want their kids to have a better education. And so it's just sea after sea of, of, of new homes built in the 70s and 80s, mainly full of people who say, we don't want more homes built next to us. We'll come back to that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And I, <laughs> it's interesting what you say about that sort of sense of being somewhere from elsewhere in the country slapped on the South Coast. Because thinking about when I've been campaigning in Eastleigh, you know, normally when you go campaigning somewhere with the Lib Dems, at least I find, you know, I, I have a natural frame of reference to other places that I'm more familiar with. So, oh, I go and visit a local party in one place and then I'm camp- canvassing in a ward and I think, oh, that's just like those other wards that I've campaigned in in the past. And actually Eastleigh doesn't, doesn't have that same sort of initial visual similarity to other sort of areas no, of great Lib Dem strength. You feel we're, like you're yeah, somewhere we're, else. We're, we're not a market town. We're not a student town. We're not a public sector town. So we don't have all those things that you have, whether you're a Winchester or an Eastbourne or somewhere somewhere in the far southwest. And I, well, I, I did a peer review a few years back, a local government thingy about mentoring and support in Pendle. And I suddenly felt, other than the hills, this is Eastleigh. Mm. Interesting. But whereas the southern half of the borough is this sea of suburbia, 
and you know, nice places, really nice places. Love, love, love it a bit. So I grew up there, so I'm not going to knock it, am I? Plus, also a little bit of genuine villagey areas around Hamworth Marinas and, and things like that, which are which have got serious wealth attached to them. Those those of your older listeners, Mark, might remember a BBC program called Howard's Way. Oh yes, in fact, it's just being repeated on daytime TV. Is I think really? I stumbled well, across Howard's the other Way day. Howard's Way is filmed in my county division in Burslesdon. And all those lovely houses really exist. And when I first stood for election in Burslem back in the mid-1980s, they had phenomenally high turnouts in local elections, about 90% turnout in some of those streets. And 90% of those people voted Tory. And they all vote for us now. And the reason they vote for us is because they've got used to us and they realise, actually, Liberal Democrats don't have horns growing from their heads. They're normal people. And worse than that, they're normal people who actually do keep knocking on the doors and delivering leaflets and sorting out casework. And that's that building that reputational brand. We we do what it says on the tin and we do it every year, all year. We'll come back to elections again, I'm sure, yeah. I, I guess. But I think this stuff is not, it's not, you know, it's not difficult. It's just hard work. Yeah. But and I think... I, put the hard work in, it, it works. A big part of that as well is, I, I think, your record on the council, isn't it? Because, th- again, one thing that strikes me when I've been in Eastleigh is, you know, say looking at the Lib Dem literature there, you know, the literature you put out is good stuff, absolutely. It wouldn't immediately, I think, say to a stranger, oh, this is obviously somewhere that's massively more successful than lots of other places, in the sense there are other places that do literature as good as you, but don't have nearly as much electoral success. And I think the, you know, as you say, the literature and the door knocking is really important, but underpinning it is the is the record on the council, yeah, isn't so it? Yeah, so it's a mixture of both the party stuff and the council stuff, <laughs> almost all mixed up together. I mean, the the, the, the party stuff, the literature, uh, we we really do run heavily on lots and lots of local issues. Mm. I just picked up my most recent leaflet for the for the area I live in last time. I just had a flip through it because I was doing a bit of a briefing for another local party about winning elections. And uh, I just counted the number of local stories. And there were 20 local stories in it. And that's the pattern, six of those every year. But with drip, drip, drip liberal stuff in, in there alongside it, I my, my, my sort of s- simple line on literature is Lib Dem's good, Tories bad, Labour can't win. Yeah. If you repeat that often enough, the message gets through and it gets repeated back to you on the doorstep. So those three core messages is basically what we do. And we do it at a very, very local level with, with potholes and bins and village halls and dog mess and all of that stuff alongside Tory sewage, alongside Tory's mess up on Brexit, alongside, alongside, alongside. And by the way, Labour can't win. Yep. And so before we turn to housing, which I think is the particularly intriguing combination of, you know, your huge yeah. natural success yeah. and huge numbers of houses being built. But and what else has the have you has has the Lib Dem group on the council and yourself achieved over the years that's sort of particularly noteworthy? I guess council tax levels is the thing yeah, I've noticed I, I, at least. I get this raised with me I get this raised with me quite a lot. And it's very easy to fall into that we did this, we did that. Mm. And some of the underlying stuff, yes. So our council tax this year will reduce in real terms, so be less than inflation. Of course, it's going to be less than inflation for everyone this year, but it's been it's been that way for 20 years running now. So every year for 20 years, we've reduced our share of the council tax because our line is council taxes are aggressive tax. It's disproportionately paid by poorer people. It's a bad tax. We need to raise our money through other sources, through commercial activity, through fees and charges for discretionary things. So we haven't cut services along the way either. So it's a little bit different. We haven't done austerity. We've said, we don't want to play this game. We believe in public services and we're going to protect our local services. We're going to have to grow our income through other routes. So that's been really important. So we've done lots of 
well, I would say sexy stuff. We built a, we built libraries, but we're not a library authority. We're a district council. We built doctor surgeries, but we're not the <laughs> NHS. We built and opened a full scale theatre on a school site, which is a county council site, just in the middle of the last recession when everyone else was closing theatres. So we've done all that stuff, but actually, it's the stuff behind that that's most interesting. What I always say that, and I do induction sessions for every new member of staff of the council, is that our job as a council is to improve the quality of life for local people. And by the way, we deliver some statutory services. But at core, our job is to fix problems. It's to solve issues that no one else has solved and own them and, and deal with them for the community. And I think that combination of being prepared to fix problems, not just say, we've got to think about the number of times we cut the grass, mm. uh, which is the, tri the trap that quite a lot of councils get, get led into, regardless of their politics, is really, really important because it says, says to the people out there and our residents, it's the stuff that's on our leaflets. We're on your side. Yeah. And we can demonstrate that through lots of different stuff all year round every year. Of course, we've got the advantage now of consistency and mm. we are the incumbents. I always say again, you know, incumbency can be an advantage, but it's also a disadvantage because it's easier for the opposition to knock holes at you. Mm. So we have to keep reinventing ourselves every year to fix the next bit of problems not just do not just do last year's problems again. So that requires a bit of imagination and creativity, but it's also about you know, the best Lib, Lib Demi stuff that you can see in Lib Dem councils all over the country, which is we're listening. We genuinely are listening to things that matter to people, which is why we are now concentrating, just as the opinion polls say, we're concentrating on health, we're concentrating cost of living. Those are the things that really matter to people. And yes, of course, we do all the green stuff, the stuff that sort of the core stuff of Lib Demery, but we do that almost in a subliminal way sometimes because our electorate isn't naturally a liberal electorate. Where, where we started this conversation so we've almost got to we've almost got to do lib, lib demery by stealth sometimes the housing thing is very much a part of that because we i understood a few years back i did a piece of work for for the coalition government from from the lib dem side that the quieter voices on housing are the ones that we now need to listen more carefully to it's very very easy to fall into the trap of saying people don't like housing actually people people love housing they don't like traffic congestion. They don't like infrastructure not being delivered. They don't like not being able to get a health appointment. Those are things people don't like. Generally speaking, people do want their grandchildren to have homes. They want their children to have homes. When I was a, when I was a youngster, all those years ago, I was able to buy my first house in my early 20s. And that's a joke now. It's just not possible. That's not right. We've got a massive problem, and we'll only tackle it if we're prepared to tackle, tackle, tackle housing seriously. And just before we get into the details of, of how you've been going about tackling housing, obviously, you know, Eastleigh, like councils all, all around the country, has had that long-term squeeze on funding from central government. And as you say, you've actually been cutting council tax in real terms. So where has the where has the money come from? What yes, is the magic money tree that you found? Well, no, I, said, <laughs> I do actually say we have invented the magic money tree, or, or not invented it, but refound it. And council tax is now a smaller part of our income, or in fact, council tax plus business rates plus fees and charges are a smaller part of our net income than our commercial income. We, during the last recession, and so there is a tip here for people as we go into the, 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 the new recession, we bought up a serious amount of commercial property, a very balanced portfolio across retail and offices and industrial units, whole mix, good balanced portfolio with strong rental income attached to it. We've also commercialised 
things like our theatres. So we we think very, very carefully about secondary. When we build things and we lease them out to, to, to long-term owners, we think about things like naming rights. We sold the naming rights to our leisure centre in the same way that Arsenal would with their stadium. And the irony is that the operator bought the naming rights because the operator didn't want some other commercial entity having their name above the door. But we then used that income to fund GP referral services. So it was additionality, stuff, again, that many other councils have cut. So the combination of all that, and yes, we're having a difficult time now because of trustonomics, the same as everyone else has, because of the high, high, infl- high inflation and high interest rates. But the simple story as a backdrop is our finances are still very strong. We built up a stonking interest rate reserve predicting what would happen at some point to, to cover us against the problems that we've now got nationally with higher interest rates and the long-term trend. But it's our commercial income that's there forever that gives us the stability to plan and, and protect services and it's given us the confidence to do other things like the massive housing program that came along somewhat after our commercial portfolio we we did for example again it's just fixing problems that, that that are someone else's problem we had an issue back around about what well, it was 15 years ago with the with the start of the last recession of the global financial crisis where our cricket club came to us and said we may have to sell our ground. We may go out of business because we're we're in with an Irish bank, but that Irish bank doesn't have access to money anymore because they got into a real pickle. And so we said, well, actually, we know your business plan. But let's let's know it a bit better. We then built a four and a half star Hilton hotel around the Aegeus Bowl as it now is, the Rose Bowl as it was then. That creates massive long term income to the council, but it gave the cricket club stability. It created five hundred jobs. £50 million of annual economic activity every year in that community. And one of the best trade grounds in the world on our doorstep that I enjoy watching people walk to from our local Mm. towns and villages. So that's a good little example. It's quite big, but it's a good example of a project that a lot of councils would have said, oh, we can't do that. It's not our job. And what's interesting as well, I think, is the politics of that is that in part, you know, there's the obvious politics, as you say, about dealing with what matters most to people as opposed to what happens to technically be in the council remit that's a very different starting point but also so many of those things therefore are physical tangible things that you know it's a bit of a cliche of having a focus full of Lib Dems pointing at things but in a way it provides a very you know literally concrete track record to be able to say look this is the difference we're making yeah, as opposed to yeah. sort of saying in abstract oh look aren't we running the council well which is which is I think the trap that some of the Tory councils that are better at getting their administration right, they off, their message is often one about, as it were, trust us, everything's being done well behind the scenes. As so those, to that. So the, exactly. So those examples, the cricket ground, the doctor's surgery, the, the leisure centre, they're all things that we built to a very high specification, very green specification, which solve a local problem. And at the same time, they make money for the council. The doctor's centre is a profit centre as far as we're concerned, as well as being a surgery that wouldn't otherwise have existed. And how have you managed to get the commercial side of that right? Because, again, thinking about, say, councils elsewhere, very often, actually, where even we've ended up taking control of a council, and certainly often when we're campaigning against a council, one of the things that we're campaigning against is some horribly botched property deal that's gone badly wrong. That often is, you know, the thing that brings down a council administration, ushers in a whole load of... Yeah. Councils. I, so, what, 
what I've seen in some of the places, and it's I, I find it really depressing, it, is that councils have gone for a quick fix. Mm. They've hired a consultant in, and that's not the answer. We we have built the skill base internally within the organisation from a very small start, very very many years ago, to one where we are very market sensitive. We are we are actually very cautious. We are very very cautious. We say no to the vast vast majority of deals that get put in front of us as an organisation. Because we, there has to be an absolutely robust business case. And that business case has got to say, well, what happens if this tenant goes bust? What happens if the economy crashes? What happens if we leave the European Union? That will never happen, will it? All these, all these what-if scenarios, we test them. And only if a project passes all those tests do we then go ahead with it. But it's the internal staff resource that's been built up over a long period of time in property, in legal, in finance quantity surveyors, the whole mix, along with a very strong working relationship between the senior staff and the senior councillors. And I don't mean that in the sense that we send each other Christmas cards. That's not what it's all about. We don't. Well, one or two maybe. But it's but it's about saying we've worked together long enough that we trust each other and we're on the same page. I, I, I tend to say to, to new staff that if you see councillors and staff sitting around a table together in a meeting, you won't be able to tell the difference other than the fact that councillors are probably a bit scruffier. <laughs> yeah? and it's that that ability to say we can have really tough debates internally have really scrappy arguments about things but it's actually for the greater good as opposed to scoring points off each other and so one area where that's paid off very much is in building houses let's turn to that now yeah so again just for a little bit of context do you want to do you want to first say something about how many houses you're building Ah, well, the building program is over three and a half thousand now. So that's, that's kind of, gosh, wow, three and a half thousand. Also, we are the largest developer in the borough by some, some distance. And we have a range of activity and projects from something very simple, like helping other developers, private sector developers with finance, um, because we want to keep small builders on sites during recessions which is one of the big problems from last time around, through to the other end of the, of the spectrum where we've simply gone out and bought greenfield sites at market value or even a bit more than market value to develop them for the long term so one site we bought for 1500 homes on a greenfield site that we've subsequently added more greenfield sites to and is now going to see two and a half thousand homes built over the next nine you have started the infrastructure on that site put the roads in first and we start on the houses this year but and everything in between from sites where we have worked with developers to speed up delivery so there's less mess around the place for a while to, to sites where we have helped with other bits of infrastructure, we lent a developer on one site money to build a school for the county council on the grounds that we would take some properties from the site. So every every combination of development and intervention, because we recognise, again, during the last housing recession, that the lumps and bumps in housing delivery put small builders out of business. And more importantly, they stop younger people in particular getting homes. And that's not right. So we now build every tenure imaginable from, from old style social rent through affordable rent, through first homes and start homes, through to market rented properties. And we've got, we think, a unique brand, which is market rented homes where we give lifetime tenancies to with mm. the option to buy in the future, which is brilliant for young people who want to establish a career or a family, through to homes for sale. And it's the homes for sale that help fund all the rest. But we're not like a volume builder, like a Persimmon or a Charles Church or a Taylor Wimpy. We don't have to make 22% profit. Mm. And that's our that's our advantage. We... We do make a profit, a modest profit, but the vast, vast bulk of that is reinvested into the properties in higher environmental standards. So our development of two and a half thousand homes 
will have a, a private wire electricity network. It will be attached to a solar farm next door that we built, another one that we're developing. So we're building solar farms too, through to EV charging points on every home, including every flat and on street alongside fantastic sustainable drainage and on and on and on because we can do it and, and great design standards. And the beauty of all that is that it actually increases the value. Who wouldn't want to buy a better quality home with higher space standards, with a home office built in pretty well as standard, with EV charging points, et cetera, et cetera, when you compare it with something which has been thrown up by a volume developer, which builds the same in Eastleigh as they build in Devon, as they build in Yorkshire. And presumably, as well as the sort of not having to make the same level of profit sort of edge that you've got, there's also, once the councillors bought a greenfield site, political cost of people being fearful you know which is often the case about what might therefore happen and are they happy with it etc that gives you an incentive to get on and build and show some of the benefits much more quickly than when with with the normal commercial developers there are all sorts of economic incentives often to sit on the land and not actually and not actually rush to develop it Yes, yeah, so there's a, there's a whole bundle of issues there, Mark. The first one is that infrastructure first matters to people. If we can genuinely put the roads in first, if we can put a lot of the green stuff in early, mm. if we can build the school quite early, that helps helps deal with some doubts. It's not easy because there is a there is a minority, a, a vocal minority, that will say we don't want to see these homes built because they're going to create all these problems. But I think we've learned that that actually is a minority, and as long as you get your messaging right, you can overcome that, and it wouldn't be true to say that we've not lost yeah. seats along the way on this. We have lost one ward. That's where our, our three independent councillors sit. But beyond that, and we'll get those back over the next few years, beyond that, we have won every argument on these sites, uh, whether we've had massive pressure groups, whether we've had people with wheelbarrows trundling dirt around the outside of the civic offices because they because we wanted to move some allotments, not, not destroy them, but move them. Uh, and we've won those arguments just by keeping consistent with our messaging. And I sometimes, sometimes in our party, and it's true, the other parties too, people just give in to those loudest voices. And sometimes those loudest voices are right. Not knocking that, but generally speaking on housing development, if you can deal with the underlying mm-hmm. problems, you can win the argument. Yeah, and, and we, it, we need to win the argument. We desperately do. It strikes me there's a parallel here with arguments about Britain's membership of the EU, in that there are there are some very unpleasant people who are you know who supported Leave, but if you categorise every Leave supporter as somehow being a bigoted racist. You're never going to persuade any of them. And actually, there's a whole chunk of Leave voters who are open to persuasion, as long as your starting point isn't to assume that everyone who voted Leave is somehow awful. And I think with housing, it's a similar thing, isn't it? It is your your you're taking as a starting point. If somebody says they're a NIMBY, well, let's let's take at face value some of the concerns they're expressing and deal with them. Yeah. And that wins some people over, doesn't it? Let's see if we can resolve those points. And I think Brexit is a, a good example. I mean, we easily voted voted to leave by 52-48. I said we're the same as the rest of the country on average. <laughs> Annoyingly so, and it's our biggest <laughs> failure in Eastleigh. I think it was big, bigger bigger than losing the parliamentary seat yeah. in, in 2015. It was it was the leave vote was the thing I most regret. And we weren't listening anywhere near well enough because we were often still too often in our own bubble of listening to some of our own friends' yeah. loudest voices and said, well, of course Britain's going to vote to remain. It would be nonsense, wouldn't it? And we weren't listening to people who were scared. We weren't listening to people who were just generally troubled. 
sometimes by real issues, sometimes by fake issues. And I, I took that as a massive learning point, actually. That we have to win those arguments by, by quality of argument, not just by noise. And so obviously getting infrastructure in early to prove to people that, yeah, local services aren't going to be overwhelmed by new housing, etc. I can imagine that's a key part of winning over the, the floating NIMBY vote, as it were. What else have you found sort of works for for, for persuading people to go from fearing losing a green field to 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 voting to re-elect the Lib Dem councillors who decided to build on the field? If you've got the time to do it and you don't have this time on every site, because sometimes these things are opportunistic and you simply have to go with a market opportunity. If you've got the time to do it, and I think our experience would back this up, is try to win the argument way before the planning application goes in. Planning is a is a confrontational process. It's designed to be confrontational just by the way the system works, the process works, which I think is deeply regrettable. So the trick, not the trick, is the thing that I've learned where you can do it is try to work out what the community most wants before you get anywhere near a planning application. I had a site in Hedge End in my own place about 15 years ago where a, a landowner was an elderly lady who owned a farm and she kept the farm when the land all around it was built up by volume builders because she wanted to protect her cats and when she finally died she left her home to and farm to the Salvation Army it was the biggest Salvation Army's national biggest ever bequest and the Salvation Army of course looked at it as a developer and thought right we'll build houses across mm. all this because we're going to make lots of money for the Salvation Army which is a perfectly legitimate thing for them to do and so we said to the Salvation Army well actually just pause a second here Let's go and talk to the local community and find out what the local community thinks really matters. And, they, and the local community said, we haven't got a park. We've got football pitches. We've got schools. We've got players. We haven't got a park. So we went back to the Salvation Army and said, well, look, a third of this land is going to be a park. And once we've established that a third of the land is going to be a park, the rest of the land can be a school and it can be some higher density housing to increase the value and by the way housing housing density should be much higher in this country because land is valuable and transport is more sustainable with higher density and so we basically won the argument salvation army didn't like it to start with but we won the argument with the community and there were almost no objections to 800 homes on a greenfield site which was surrounded by housing and again people said well you, you're not going to do that are you it was about framing the debate in a way the community wanted. Now, we haven't always been able to do that. And we lost a big, big round about one site in a local plan. And that's the one ward that independents have won. <laughs> As I say, we'll get those back, hopefully starting from this year. But in the round, we've won more arguments than we've lost by simply getting the messaging right. It's the same as everything else to do with elections. Get the messaging right and say it again and again and again. And it's not hard. It's just hard work. And it, it is there, I think you touched on this a little bit with that lifelong tenancy thing. Is there is there also a factor of making people feel that the how, the new housing will actually benefit them and their community? Because I think certainly, for example, in the bit of London where I am, you know, the local Facebook groups are full of opposition to planning applications. And one of the themes that runs through them is an assumption that more housing will benefit people moving in from elsewhere and that will put even more pressure on services so part of it is the the the, the absence of the delivery of improved services sort of up front or in parallel with with extra housing but part of it is an assumption which i think in london is often true and so it's a tricky one to tackle but an assumption that you know, more housing will benefit people from elsewhere moving in as opposed to feeling like oh okay my kids are going to be able to live near, near me when they move out yeah, no, we get that exactly spoken back to us. And the number of times I've heard, and you'll see how nimby the argument is when I say it, the number of times I've heard people say, oh, you want to build new homes there, people from Portsmouth will move in. 
And I thought, well, actually, Gerald, Gerald doesn't want to move here. But it, but it's that. So the same story is true everywhere across the entire country, Mark. I'm absolutely sure on that. The the lifetime tenancy thing was something which we 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 invented actually because it was part of understanding the problem. And I'm of a generation now where my children have all grown up and got children, but most of them are still struggling to find homes themselves or at least long term homes they they bought. And one thing that really hit me was that. We, because we're not a university town, because we're not a town with big institutional investment like a London or a Liverpool or a Manchester or a Bristol, most of our market rented stock are buy to lets. Mm. They're landlords that have got one property or two properties or three mm. properties. They're not desperately well maintained. They're basically there as a pension for the landowner. Yeah. And they're they're all tied up with these dreadful assured short hold tenancies where the landlord can kick you out at almost no notice. And that doesn't give people a, a quality of life or a stability. So it just struck me that we needed to find a way of fixing that. So if we're building <laughs> lots of lovely new homes, let's make sure that a decent decent block of these, maybe 20 or 25%, are homes that we can rent to local people, that they can create stability in, and they can then maybe buy from us at mm-hmm. some point in the future when it works for them when they've built their career up and avoid this whole dreadful trap of move in, move out, move in, move out. Yeah. And you're losing a deposit along the way. You're losing your part of your... It's just horrible. So those kind of problems to fix actually do appeal to some of those NIMBYs. Because mm. some of those NIMBYs, lovely people along the way in every other respect, have got children who are in that, tra- who are in that trap. So that's you make it in a way sound so obviously sensible and straightforward but obviously not every council is managing to do what you're doing so if if there is a listener who is a councillor or maybe hoping to be elected a, as a councillor in may and thinking oh i wish my council could you know we could say maybe gain lib dem control here and then start copying some of the things that Eastley's done what would be your sort of top tip on how to get sort of houses built in a council where where that's not really happening at the moment because it's quite a long road you've been on, isn't it? So what it would is be a long road, help? and I think if we were starting again, we'd do it differently mm. because we've, we've made some mistakes along the way. And I, I don't think anything we've done is particularly clever. It is pretty straightforward and simple mm. stuff if you're prepared to analyse the world in a slightly different way. I would say the most important things for any Liberal Democrat council, regardless of what they're trying to do, regardless of what their ambitions are, it might not be housing, it might be roads, it might be railways, it might be green spaces, it might be who knows what it might be, is firstly understand the issue secondly develop the team around the issue win everybody on your own side over so we don't have lots of rows have a proper sit down if you're running the council with senior council staff get them on board if you're in our position clearly your first objective is to win the council first then get the staff on board but it's got to be a team it really has to be a team there there are there is no space for egos in any of this stuff we don't have a brand keith house we have a brand liberal democrat we have a brand east and it's not about one person or any group of people it's about the whole team so getting everybody on board and then actually it's having confidence and being prepared to ask the awkward question i have a little thing that i again say with new staff is that one of our issues when someone, someone rings the council up firstly the first thing the member of staff should do is keep smiling because that positivity gets reflected back to the resident. It's not a grumpy. Yeah. Uh. But secondly, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? Mm. Start from a mindset that we're here to solve problems and knock down barriers. And those barriers, you know, they're not just about housing. They're about equality. They're about social benefits. They're about 
what the government now calls levelling up, that we would ta- we would call tackling poverty, tackling inequality, tackling ignorance. The great the great mm-hmm. five themes yeah. that the the welfare state were built on all those years ago, and those are things that liberals are passionate about. I certainly am. I've actually got more passionate as I've gone along mm-hmm. because I've recognised we can fix more of these problems if only we apply our brains. We don't have to be brilliant. I'm no academic. I'm a working class lad from Southampton, but it can be done just with a bit of enthusiasm, a bit of confidence and getting people working together. And it's interesting how much you've sort of made reference at various points, actually, in this really interesting discussion to, in a sense, managerial competence, you know, definitely with a real political philosophy running through it. But I think the sort of thing that motivates someone to be really passionate about a particular ward and maybe gets them stuck into local politics and wanting to be a local councillor is a really valuable, you know, source of recruiting councillors and so on. But I think what you highlight is how in a council group you need a good mix of people who have got some broader experience of how to run organisations well, which may go along with that very sort of geographic focus and passion for pointing at potholes but it may not you know those are you know different people have different skills and so on so has that been part of what you particularly looked for when sort of recruiting council candidates is trying to bring in sort of you know people with with experience from other organizations or is it that that's been more sort of organically grown as people have learned their roles as councillors it's a, it's a mixture it's the honest answer some of it is 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 chance some of it is planned some of it doesn't quite work we have a natural breeding ground for councillors called parish and town council so we have we always put our main effort into recruiting parish and town council candidates and growing the most enthusiastic of those the most competent of those the most visionary of those into borough councillors and council councillors so that gives us an easy starting point, which you don't have in London, for example, where you've got to go these this one-off, all-out election every four years, and it's 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 awful. I feel for you. So we don't have that. We have elections every year, and it's lovely. But it does mean we do actually go, actively go out and seek talent. Sometimes we find talent by accident. My deputy leader at the moment is a recently retired banker who who knows about, and so he's been able to use his professional skill base, along with my slightly amateur. I'm a planner, really, kind of thing. Yeah. Experience to work together and collaboratively, and to give an extra bit of insider feel into that sector. Mm-hmm. But we do try to recruit people who can complement the team. We've got teachers. We've got well, everyone's got teachers, but we've got we've got we've got people who with from small businesses. We've got people from every bit of the public sector. We st- we're still a bit too public rather than private sectorish in terms of reflecting back our our audience. We're still a bit too older than we ought to be, but that's true of a lot of places. And because we haven't got a student base, we don't find it that easy to recruit yeah. them. So it's a challenge. But 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 building people into the team is the most important bit. And if just occasionally someone really can't work with that team having the confidence within the party to say it's time to part ways mm. and just be open about that because it's far better to have clean breaks mm. if people can't be part of that mm. team project than it is to have what often sadly happens, which is massive rows internally that fester on for years. So that's part of leadership as well. It's a bit like in the business or in any, any organisation. If someone someone can't, can't make it for whatever reason, find a way of gently parting ways. But that's a rarity. And we've got people who've been with us for decades. We love it to bits. We recently re-elected a councillor who'd taken a break after 12 years, eight years rather, yeah. who has come back on the council in her early 80s because she really couldn't <laughs> She really couldn't lose it. She really couldn't lose it. And I actually say she's one of the youngest people in the team because hmm. her mindset yeah. is youthful and enthusiastic. And it's that, it's that positivity that yeah. we really need. Yeah. So one final question. All of 
all of that in a way is predicated on winning elections so we've talked about a tip for sort of how to get more houses built what would your tip be for particularly th those of our colleagues around the country where we've got you know elections this may in a lot of places where our potential and the demographics is massively higher than what we've managed to achieve in the last few years it's really promising territory to sort of grow so what would be your tip for somewhere someone in an area where there's a you know real opportunity but we've not yet built up that regular election winning track record that you you now have so well established so I would say do what we did in a slightly different way, which is firstly, be confident. Secondly, don't ever be complacent. Thirdly, target relentlessly. Mm. Most importantly, get your message right and get it out there again and again and again. My message this year is the same message it's been every year for the last 30 years. Liberal Democrats good, Tories bad, Labour can't win. Everything is dressed up in those ways, roughly in equal measure. It's the message that works for us. It will be different somewhere else. You just need to work out what it is, and then you can win. Excellent. That seems like a brilliant note on which to wrap things up. So thank you hugely for your time, Keith. Listeners can find Keith on Twitter, as long as Twitter is still running. Who knows how long that will be? At C-L-L-R Keith House. And you can find myself on Twitter at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed, including I'll see if I can find a clip on YouTube of Howard's Way showing Keith's old stomping ground. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you, everyone, for listening.